Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pivot Podcast. Each week, join career coaches and Pivot Discovery co-founders, Alexandra Balistrieri and Kimberly Tilly, as they interview an extraordinary and inspiring guest who successfully pivoted away from unfulfilling work to pursue their dreams. Benefit from their insight and experience and leave with actionable tips to reframe your future. We're excited to bring you today's show where we're joined by Kristen Sherry, founder of UMAP LLC and a serial career pivoter. Our interview with Kristen was broken into two episodes. Today's episode covers the first part of her career, including when she decided to leave corporate life and become an entrepreneur, with some excellent tips to help others get started. Let's jump into today's interview. Kristen, welcome. We're so thrilled to have you. Yes, welcome. Thank you, Kimberly and Alexandra. As we were preparing for today's interview and looking at your history, we realized you didn't have one career pivot. You have a whole series of career pivots. Um, Before we talk about what you're doing right now, which is fascinating, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Um, Maybe starting off at a high level overview from the time that you were a programmer all the way up through when you were an L&D manager. Sure. Well, my entire career history was completely an accident. Everything (laughs) I ended up in was really the hand of someone else influencing my career. I really didn't own my own career. I went to college for um, a degree in neuroscience. I wanted to be a neurologist. And really after that, I decided that I didn't want to do that. I didn't really have a plan. So I ended up completely by accident as a programmer. Somebody saw my resume and thought that I had a learner mentality looking at all of the courses and classes and things that I would take and asked me, you know, do you think you can learn this job? And I'm like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then after about 11 years of that, I really didn't see my career going anywhere. So that's when I pivoted into the business analytics and reporting. And then operations reached out to me a director, I believe, and said, hey, why don't you come into operations? So I was like, sure, I can do that. I mean, it really, I was just led by the nose throughout my career, it seems, until after about two or three years in operations, I realized that really wasn't bringing me joy. I loved developing the team and having a team, but I really didn't like operations itself. I didn't like the fires of operations, the constant problems of operations. So that's when I decided to take a little bit more control over my career. And I decided, you know, what do I really want to do? What are the the elements of my jobs that I've had that I really did like? And I decided that I liked facilitation and training and speaking, developing people. So Mm -hmm. the obvious next move was learning and development. So that's when I moved into, into that area. Wow. So I'm, I'm a little bit surprised to, to think about somebody seeing your, your resume at the very beginning and looking at all the, the courses that you took and then deciding, you know what, she would be a great programmer. But it does sound like it's just what you said, you know, it's just sort of suggestions and you would take people up on those, but it wasn't really like you had a plan at the beginning of your career. Well, I think we really need more leaders that see potential in people. I think so many people are caught up in the bullets of past experience 
And this manager saw potential in me from my resume. So I had worked at a university. And while I was there working in an executive MBA program, I decided to avail myself of all of the courses I could take for free. So I took an HR certificate program. I took a micro MBA program. I took a number of these little, you know, 10 week certificate programs because I had learner in my top five strengths. So I like to learn and grow. And for a long time, these constant pivots made me feel almost bad about myself because I thought, why can't I just get a job and be happy? Why do I keep having this wanderlust every two years? But then after I did the Strengths Finder, well, I guess it's called the Clifton Strengths now assessment and saw that I had learner in my top five at that time, I realized there was nothing wrong with me. I just wasn't a vertical ladder climber. I was a lateral career mover because I liked to amass a general amount of knowledge because of that learner. So that happens to a lot of people where after 18 months or two years, like clockwork, they want to move on. And generally that's why, because they value learning or they have learning and growth um, in, in their natural abilities. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm surprised that you would say that you felt a little bit bad about yourself because you would think with success in all of these different areas, it would give you some momentum and you would feel good about yourself. Well, it's kind of like this jack of all trades, master of none thing going on, right? So I knew a lot, <laughs> a little bit about a lot of different things, but I had this perception at the time that the people who were successful really stuck with a career path and kept moving up and up and up. But I didn't realize at the time that that's only one type of career pattern. Not everyone is wired to be what we call a vertical ladder climber. And I wasn't, I, that I wasn't wired that way. And for people who were like me, who were either like a spiraler who like to move around or move to make lateral moves or people who like to be experts and go deeper in their knowledge or people who just like to be contractors or work in the gig economy and come and go, uh, we're almost made to feel like there's something wrong with us that we don't, we're not successful in climbing that ladder. But I, that has, no, I have no interest in that. Well, it sounds like you have a really diverse, you know, career path and a really diverse um, experience. And you were really successful in the corporate environment to be able to move around like that. But what made you consider leaving the corporate world and what did you want to do instead? Well, there was a couple of things that happened. I think a pivotal moment for me was really assessing my values and what was important to me. And I went to Boston for a sales training workshop that my mentor invited me to join. He was teaching it. And we went for a walk. I think it was before the session. And he said to me, do you know what your values are? And I just said, of course I do. It was a very reflexive answer without any sort of <laughs> reflection. And uh, he said, okay, what are your values? And I completely fumbled. I, I had no idea. So I just said, well, my family, I value my family. And he said, family isn't a value. And I was just left with this admission that I was a 40 three-year-old woman who had no idea what was important to me. <laughs> so, uh, so he said, you know what, don't worry about it. We'll get on a call and I'll walk you through an exercise to discover what's important to you. And that's exactly what we did. And he started to ask me questions about 
what were times in your life that you were happiest and most fulfilled and satisfied? And I would tell these stories and he would dig and say, well, what was it about that that made you satisfied or fulfilled? And then he kept asking me why, why, why and digging in. And we ended up with these list of 10 values. And he said, now I want you to look at your life. And are those values really being fulfilled in your life? And I had to admit that, no, my top five values were not honored in the work I was doing. And it was so illuminating. I had to make a change immediately. And I went to my husband and I said, I have to quit my job. (laughs) And he was just like a deer in the headlight. I don't think that's a good idea. How are we going to pay this, that, and the other? And so I said to him, well, what would it take to overcome your objections? And he said, well, if you save six months of expenses, and if it doesn't work out working for yourself, that you'll agree to go back and find a job. I said, done. And I went and did exactly what he said. And when I had the six months saved, I said, here I am. And he said, all right, go ahead and quit your job. And the rest is history there. That's great that he was so supportive, but also that you were able to come to that realization so completely. It sounds like you didn't have a lot of doubt. No, I didn't once I knew it was important to me, but I want to point out something when, when you said that he had a lot of faith in me or that he was supportive, mm-hmm. I knew how to approach my husband based on who he is. I think a lot of times when people want to quit their job and become an entrepreneur and they have a partner or someone they live with that <laughs> their financial situation impacts them, they might say things like, you know, I feel really confident in my ability to do this. I have a lot of clarity. I really want this. I'm very passionate about this. It's going to be okay. Those types of approaches would not have worked with my husband. He works in information security, and he's just as analytical as that sounds. So (laughs) (laughs) um, I knew that about him, and I knew I couldn't say, oh, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Or let's just see how it goes for a year. And if it doesn't work out like that, those types of approaches weren't going to work with him. So you have to really find out what someone else's negotiables and non-negotiables are by asking questions like I asked, what would it take? And then mm-hmm. when someone tells you no, they don't want you to do something, they don't always tell you the reason. So when you ask a question like that, it surfaces their real concerns. And I was able to pr- practically a- achieve what was important to him. And, you know, it's been really key for me to be at home during COVID, for example, because my husband has a demanding job with a lot of client meetings. And if I didn't have flexibility as an entrepreneur, we'd have been really up a creek. Definitely. But let me ask you one other question about that, Kristen. You were sure about what you wanted to do and and your husband was supportive because you were able to, to talk to him in a way that made him feel comfortable about it. But did you have any any feelings about about leaving the corporate world? And I'm thinking of around security and, and the, the guaranteed paycheck and the guaranteed benefits and all of these things. Absolutely. I'd be lying if I said that I didn't have any concerns. I did believe in myself, but security is in my top 10 values, believe it or not. <laughs> it may not <laughs> seem that way for someone who's, who, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a bold risk taker, and uh, I, I, chart, I go into uncharted waters all the time. But security is important to me. I am very fussy about living in 
uh, nice, clean surroundings. I don't want to live in my car, you know, so I don't, <laughs> that, that appeals to me. So, so security was important to me and I knew that I wouldn't get a steady paycheck. And I will admit there were times where I had $5 in my bank account. When I first started, um, I obviously wasn't pulling in the same amount of money that I was pulling in and in the corporate world, but I knew what I was good at. I knew who I was. I knew what my value proposition was. I had done a lot of reflection and a lot of exercises and assessments to find out who I was. And that self-awareness really gave me the confidence to know that I was capable to do the things that I was really setting out to do. So I just had to not run and, and quit during those early times where the paycheck is very unstable. You never know when you're going to get paid. And I still don't know that now, but it doesn't bother me now because I have a cushion. So yes, it, it absolutely was a concern, but, but by the same token on the other side of that coin, I had deep confidence that I knew what I was supposed to be doing. I think it's just so important for people to hear that vulnerability because no matter how sure you are and confident you are and ready you are, there, there is always that, you know, some level of doubt, I think, when you go from something that you're really certain and just like that steady paycheck and you know what to expect and you know the environment and the people that you're around and then making that big shift, it can be really scary, um, no matter how good at dealing with change and flexibility you are. Absolutely. There were, there were moments where I was gripped in fear. I had a son in college. I had a son in private school, in high school. I had a daughter in daycare. So all of my, all of the, the, the three kids I had, I've had a fourth since, but the three kids I had at the time, none of them were in free school, so to speak. So it, it was gripping sometimes the fear, but I would just remind myself that if I kept dwelling in a, in a scarcity mindset, that I was never going to attract abundance. So I had to work very actively every day to shift from a scarcity mindset to an abundant mindset. And some of the ways I did that was to continue to be generous. I continued to give to my church. I continued to donate my books to people. Once I had written a book, I, I gave things, gave of my time and really built goodwill in my community. And then people gave back to me. So I didn't allow myself to say things like, well, I can't hire an assistant to help me with my administrative work because I can't afford it. I, I wouldn't allow myself to say those scarcity things. My mother used to say to me when I was younger that you should never say things like, well, I can't afford it because you're putting that out and you start, and it's not that it's some magical thing. Like you said, the word in the universe will conspire against you, but you are playing these tracks in your own mind when you say those things and you start to believe it. And then you view the world through a lens of scarcity. I 100% agree with your mother. I think that the words that you say, um, even if nobody else is listening to them, you're listening to them. And it does, it, it programs you to either succeed or to fail. Mm -hmm. I think she's 100% correct about that. It's very powerful. Kristen, once you decided that you were going to move to your own business, 
what actions did you take to facilitate that? So you quit your job, obviously, but what were, what were maybe the first few things that you did? So the first thing I did was I consulted, besides the saving of the money, <laughs> I consulted with mentors who'd been there before. I knew that there were a lot of missteps that I could make as a new entrepreneur, and I didn't know what I didn't know. So I had a number of people that I contacted and asked them if they would talk to me and give me advice. And I had a series of questions and then they offered advice on top of that. And I received a lot of solid advice. One piece of advice I got was don't try to build everything. You end up making yourself cash poor when you're like, okay, I have to have the the glitzy website and all the business cards and all of these tools and services. The advice I got was what are the basics that you need to run a business? You need to be able to have a process. You need to know what you're doing. You have to have your services and you have to have the pricing associated with that. You have to be able to invoice people and take their money. (laughs) Those are the things that you need to be able to do, right? And I thought to myself, well, what about like my fancy website and my fancy business cards? And they said, you know what? Let your clients pay for those. Leverage your LinkedIn profile in the short term. And I know people who've been entrepreneurs for a long time as well, and they didn't pay for all of the the technology is what really bankrupts people because they think they have to have all the technology at the start. And you really don't. And when I created the UMAP profile, we actually created them manually for a long time because the advice I got was if you invest in all this technology portals and automate all of the assessments and everything like that, you don't even know if the market wants this. And what if you don't sell any? You have to prove that the market wants your product before you build everything. Now, there are going to be exceptions to that advice. If your product is a technology product, (laughs) you have no choice. But But people didn't know what went on behind the scenes to get their final product and how manual things were. And it didn't matter. Could you give us just like a general picture of about how long this process took from the time when you started doing all of these things and you had your own business until the time where you felt like, you know what, I'm, I'm successful. I'm, I'm becoming a success. Like how, how long was that process? So that was about two years. So my first year I had a lot of help. I was able to get a contract and I recommend people try this. You know, your employer might still value what you have to offer in a contract capacity. So I approached my employer and asked them if they wanted to continue some of the services I was providing on a contract basis. And they said, yes. And I ended up working with my employer being my client for three years. Well, that's that's always something to keep in mind, pitching, pitching that to help keep your business, you know, really kind of grease the wheels of your business. And then I relied on some referrals. So I had some partnerships that I created with people who had related services, but they didn't have competitive services and their clients might need me next or need me before they worked with that person. So creating those strategic partnerships where you can send each other business That was really key for me. So in my first year, I made half of what I made from my corporate salary. And then by the end of the second year, I was, I had met my, my corporate salary. And then from there on, I exceeded it. And I used to think that I could never make more 
than my corporate salary. So I thought, well, you know, I, I want to be happy. So that's what matters. So I'm okay with making less than I was making in corporate. And it's kind of funny in hindsight now, that was also a limiting belief that you can't make as much money as you can that a corporation will pay you. That's very interesting because I think that that's sort of in the back of almost every entrepreneur's mind, you know, that they may not make as much, but then they have all these trade-offs, you know, like you might have more time or you can, you can work when, when it's most convenient for you. So that's, I think that's really interesting. Well, I know a woman who quit her job. I want to say it was two years ago now. And she had said, I know I'm not going to make as much doing this, but my sanity and my happiness is so much more important. And she does make probably half of what she was making in the corporate world, but she said she would never go back. She's so happy. She has so much flexibility. She loves what she's doing. She loves the people who she's working with and the money. They just figured it out. They figured out how can we live a little bit differently and she will never go back to corporate. Good for her. I think a lot of people end up consigning themselves to these corporate environments and it really does take such a toll on them and their happiness. And Mm -hmm. um, I really admire people for doing that. And a lot of times those small adjustments you make aren't even really perceptible to you. It's very easy to get used to doing a little bit less, but then being so much happier, it more than makes up for it. Yeah, I think a lot of the times people, they become house poor. When they get raises, they buy bigger houses than they need. They really keep raising their standard of living. And the best advice I could give people is as your standard of living increases, keep living the same way. So my husband and I always buy cars that are year old so we don't pay for the depreciation. We get low mileage, but they're one car had, I think, a thousand miles on it. It was a year old. And we double our car payments and do things like that to save money on consumer debt has tends to have high interest payments. And so we've done some creative things to, we don't have car payments. Yeah. My husband's been driving his truck. It's a Ford F-150 that's 13 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, I bought a used car. I think if you look at a lot of the millionaires, they, they actually do drive used cars. And it's, huh. think, well, I, I, I want to live high on the hog once I, once I start making more money. But really, the trade-off is you're not going to have the freedom. And if that's okay, like if you want to drive a new car every two or three years, and that's what you value, and that's what's important, I'm speaking out of my values here. But I value freedom and flexibility and the, the ability to take time off work if I want to. And so mm-hmm. I don't live to my means so that I can do that. That's really interesting that you're, you're circling that back because I think it really goes back to, you know, that whole idea of self-awareness and really knowing what your non-negotiables are. If you really value, you know, freedom versus having a beautiful luxurious car, then you need to know that about yourself in order to be successful. Oh yeah. Because especially as an entrepreneur, there are so many competitive voices in the social media influencer space telling you what you need to be doing. You need to be getting up at 5 a.m. and hustle and grind and all of this, all of these messages that people are sending to entrepreneurs. But you have to remember that a lot of these people giving that advice, you're their customer And so they're they're 
filling like these scarcity messages into your mind and oh my goodness i i can't do those things i'm not doing those things i need to hire you so you got to keep in mind where the advice is coming from but also the values of that person i will never be a get up and grind at 5 a.m person <laughs> i don't start to work until 9 a.m every day and i'm doing just fine so that's nonsense that you have to do things the way other entrepreneurs do things you really have to do things aligned to what's important to you to the gifting that you have to what motivates you and you will be fine so it sounds like um you know by the time you quit your job and you went out on your own things began to take off for you in this new environment fairly quickly were there certain things or choices you made that really facilitated your success 100 percent. i paid attention to how my body felt every day when i was doing services that i thought i had to do one of the biggest lies that people in career services say is i have to write resumes to stay afloat and i believed that at first so i started doing that and then i realized i hated it so i thought I procrastinate. I write the resume the day it's due. This is not good. What I'm going to end up doing is not getting references or people are going to refer people for resumes and I'm going to get more work of what I hate doing. So I went and hid all of the recommendations that were linked uh, on LinkedIn that were related to resume writing. I took it off my website and said, I'm not doing this anymore. And when people would call me for a resume, I did that scary thing of referring the business away. And interestingly, I had more energy. I was more invigorated about my work and I was getting more work uh, doing what I wanted to do. And I remember a woman called me and she said, how are you selling career transition coaching, which I don't do by the way uh, anymore. I don't coach one-on-one, but she said, how are you doing that? Every time a client calls me, and I try to sell them on coaching services. They're like, no, I just want a resume. And I said, well, what's your website? And I went on her website and all it talked about was resumes. So I said, the, the, <laughs> the customer has always already made the decision to buy by the time they've contacted you. And of course you can't upsell them because first of all, you're attracting resumes because your your website and, and that's what they've already decided to buy. And I don't put that out there. So that's not what I attract. I attracted people who are lost and confused and didn't know where to go next in their life because those people are out there. They're not at the point of writing a resume because they don't have the foggiest clue what they want to do. You're just not attracting the right people. So it's very scary for people to stop offering services. You don't have to be in career services. I don't care what kind of an entrepreneur you are, but there's that thing in your industry that everyone feels is the bread and butter that they have to offer. And I'm here to say that is not true. If you brand yourself and you put the message out there to the people who need what you offer, like what you do best is what they need most, you will attract those people. If you put out resumes, that's what you're going to attract. Absolutely. That totally makes sense. There is at least one thing in every industry that you do feel like you have to do. Mm -hmm. And Alexandra and I are in, you know, the career services industry and, and resume writing is a huge piece of that. So mm -hmm. I can I can imagine why you felt like you needed to do that for a long time. But I love the advice to pay attention to how you feel at the end of every day, because mm -hmm. when you are doing things that you don't like to do, you feel exhausted, more exhausted than if you had been out exercising all day. 
Yeah, and I and the whole reason I left the corporate world was to love my work. And what I was doing was just recreating the corporate feeling in my entrepreneurial venture. And what was the point of that? <laughs> so I said to myself, you know, enough is enough. What do I really love doing? And I looked through all my services. What do I really love doing? And what am I really good at? And I said, all right, these are the things. That's all I'm offering. And I'm going to create partnerships with people who do these other things. So I started reaching out to people saying, hey, I'm going to be referring business are you interested? And I started to get a, a catalog in my mind of who did what. And then they started sending me business when, when they said, you know, this person isn't ready for a resume. They really don't know what they want. They would send them to me. And I actually got clients that way. And then I would send them back to the resume writer. And I can imagine that was probably pretty difficult because you're looking at this, you know, core service. It's almost like an industry standard across the board. And then you're saying, no, I'm not going to do it. And you're just pushing that money and you're pushing that business to somebody else. But I think it's so important because that, that daunting task can just take up so much of your headspace. And now you're free to put all your energy into something that's really going to come out great. You said the key oh. word, Alexandra. When I would push that business away, I had this feeling of elation of, yes, I don't have to do that work. <laughs> That that reinforcement of how good I felt not doing it told me I was doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that will do it for part one of our special two-part episode of Pivot. Our guest this week was Kristen Sherry, the author of UMAP, a number one international bestseller on Amazon and the founder of UMAP LLC. You can find Kristen's contact information in the show notes along with our contact information for Pivot Discovery. We provide career services and specialize in helping people make a change to reframe their future. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to check out next week's episode for the second half of our interview with Kristen when we'll talk about what she's doing now and what's next for her.